I'm thankful to Cody for his prayer, reminding us that um, God is the giver of life, and he is the giver of new life. And we've been reminded of that this morning as we meditate on the, the fact and as we pray in line with the fact that God has made the little babies that are in the womb. And God has given life. He said, let there be life. And, and in Terry's case, we praise him that he said in Terry's heart, let there be spiritual life. And all of us here this morning who are worshiping from the heart, who are truly praying to the Lord and seeking his face and desiring to be, above all, in his holy temple, as we think about the psalmist uh, crying out there, to be in the presence of the Lord in the temple, uh, that the fact that that's even happening here is a miracle. It is God's grace giving us a new life in Christ. So we praise him today that we have a heart for him, that we would even have a desire to be here with God's people, that we would have a desire to open up his word, and that we would have... Uh, any real joy that would result in clapping as Terry comes up from the baptismal water. That is the grace of God. Anytime you read a biblical book, you want to ask the question, what is the author's intention? What is the author's intent? Authorial intent is what we're after when we're reading the Bible. If we're just reading the Bible for these little sort of uh, you know, uh, the, the, the wind moved me and I was carried away by this little idea or whatever. That, that's not a responsible way to engage with the Word of God. The way we engage with the Word of God responsibly in order to understand it and to interpret it and to gain all the riches that it has for us is to ask the question, what did the author who wrote this intend when he wrote it? God's inspired words come through the vehicle of the author who wrote it. And that's the reason why you can read something like 1 John or Hebrews or Romans or the Gospel of Matthew. And you can see very different style. You can see very different uh, emphases. You can see a very different approach. God used these human authors to, to bring written down his very Words. It is the word of God, but God brought it to us by these men. They are vehicles. And in this respect, with regard to authorial intent, New Testament epistles are particularly helpful in quickly getting us there. The epistles in particular help us to quickly discern what is the author's intent in writing. And at the end of Romans, Paul tells us what is on his mind. As he writes his letter. You know, Paul wrote this letter probably in one sitting. I mean, we don't know that. We don't know how he did it. It's a very fascinating, interesting thing. We just don't have a lot of data or evidence to to go off of there. But we can imagine Paul writing this fairly quickly and, and working through it. And it's interesting, when we get to the end of the letter, yes, for us, Romans 3 and 4 was, you know, a year and a half ago. But for Paul, it was 15, 20 30 minutes ago, it was an hour ago, it was as he's writing these things. And so as we come to the end of the letter and Paul gives us all this personal autobiographical material, we gain an insight, we gain a window into what he's thinking about as he writes all of it, what his intentions are as he is unfolding this glorious theology throughout this most famous of letters. 
He wants to go west to Spain to further the mission. And he wants the Roman Christians to help him get there. He wants them to supply what he needs, <coughs> excuse me, what he needs in order to make that journey to Spain to bring the gospel. He wants to visit the Roman believers themselves so that they can all be mutually strengthened. And he wants to further the unity between Jews and Gentiles by delivering the Gentile contribution that he has received throughout the Mediterranean to the needy saints in Jerusalem. That's what Paul wants. That's what's on his heart. That's, that's what his intentions are. Those are his desires. And that's what we looked at last week. Those are Paul's plans. That's what's on his mind as he unfolds his gospel throughout the letter. These very practical concrete things are what's swimming around in his mind as he writes, say, the end of Romans 8 or the end of Romans 3, as we have on these posters up here on the wall. This is theology. What we have in Romans is theology leaning towards mission, discipleship, and unity among believers. All of, the, all of these things, Paul is leaning into them as he is articulating his understanding of the gospel as he is unfolding his theology through this letter. This tells us that our knowing and thinking are driven towards something. We don't just merely know. We don't just merely think about things. All of this knowing, all of this studying, all of this reading and meditating are driven towards something. And let me just encourage you as you go into 2022, maybe you're really pumped up about your Bible reading goals and you should be. That's wonderful. Let's do that collectively in various ways. And we all come at that differently from year to year. This is a great time to do that. But let me just say this to you. If you're just sitting around, just imbibing divine things, and those divine things are not pushing you out, not causing you to lean towards these sorts of things, it's going to do nothing more than puff you up and harden your heart. It's going to do nothing more but entrench you in a kind of self-absorption that will not honor the Lord and will not be about Christ's kingdom. No matter how many chapters you take in in a day, no matter how much time you spend with your face in front of these holy words, they are meant to drive us out towards these kinds of things, mission, discipleship of others, and cultivating unity among believers. But on the flip side, you can't have those things without a clear, true, and known gospel. You cannot have mission and discipleship and unity among God's people without a clear, true, and known gospel. Gospel. What good is it to bring a false or watered down gospel to the nations? We've seen what that's done throughout the nations of the world. We've seen what that has done in South America and in Africa and in other parts of the world. False gospels do not need to be propagated. Watered down, non Christocentric, non biblical based gospels must be silenced not propagated. 
What good is it to speak of missions without substance? What good is it to speak of missions and evangelism and apologetics and the like without hard, rock-solid biblical truth? What is discipleship if not being built up in the truth, into the head who is Christ? And how can we have unity around anything other than a true knowledge of Christ and his purposes. Our unity is Christ, not a set of ideas, not some sort of interdenominational ecumenism, not some sort of just we need to all cooperate, interfaith movements. Our unity is a person, a crucified, raised, exalted, coming again, living person who by his spirit cultivates unity among the true people of God. And so it goes both ways. The gospel, this truth, this robust knowledge must lean forward into these things, but these things must also be based on this robust gospel. And that's why Paul spends so much time in Romans explaining the gospel that he preaches. Now as we come to the end of the letter, we gain insight into what all this has been about. Why has Paul been doing all of this? All this time, all this effort, all this intricacy for this purpose. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been watching Paul wind down (coughs) his letter. We've been watching him bring all of this to a conclusion. And this conclusion runs from chapter 15, verse 14, all the way to the end of chapter 16. So we are in the concluding section of the letter. And it's quite large. It's quite a lot of concluding Material. We've looked at the Apostle's ministry and his plans. And today we come to the Apostle's prayer requests. And that's the title for the sermon this morning The Apostle's Prayer Requests. If you would go ahead and stand with me, we're going to read God's Word. Let me give you the passage. I haven't done that yet. Uh, Romans 15, verses 30 to 33. Just those last set of verses at the end of Romans 15. That's what we'll look at today, the apostles' prayer requests. So for our reading, as I've been doing, just to give you all that introductory and concluding material together, give you insight into Paul's heart as he begins and ends his letter, we're going to go back to chapter 1 and look at verses 8 to 15, and then we're going to fast forward to the end of the letter where he picks back up again in chapter 15, verse 14. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Romans 1, beginning in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. 
So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then he launches into his thesis there, his theme, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. He goes all the way through 15 chapters of material. And then we get to chapter 15, verse 14, where he ends his teaching and he picks it back up with this interpersonal material. 15, 14, I myself... I'm satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That was two weeks ago where we looked at the apostles' ministry. And then verses 22 to 29, the apostles' plans. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings." When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And now for our passage for today, the Apostles' Prayer Requests. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on this time in his word, this time of instruction. We call this in our service uh, instruction. This is part of our worship service. So uh, this is, uh, we're, we're moving along now and we're worshiping God through studying his word, through being instructed in it. So let's pray and ask that the Lord would bless this portion of our service and that he would open our eyes and minds, our hearts, and he would bring change in our lives for his glory. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day, Lord. It's, it's cold and wet, not the kind of day typically that we describe as a nice day, uh, unless it snows, of course, and then we all like that. But Father, we just... Uh, We're so overwhelmed with joy at this wonderful day because of this baptism of Terry. Lord, we're grateful for that, and it it just shines out into this day, your glory. Father, your 
the power of your grace. You're so good. You're so kind. You're so faithful to your promises. And you are bringing in people from from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people like us from all over the world. If we go back and look at our, our, our history, our lineage, Lord, we, we don't come from the Jewish people and largely. And Lord, here we are worshiping you. We're just living, breathing examples of your faithfulness to Abraham. When you promised him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that in him, in his descendant, as you'll later say, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Lord, we're blessed this morning through your faithfulness to your promises to the Jewish patriarchs. We praise you, God, for your faithfulness to your promise to Adam and Eve as you put the judgment upon Satan, upon the serpent. Lord, you gave those words of hope that one would come from the seed of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. We praise you for this mighty Christ who crushes Satan's head and who undoes our our sinful heart who, who untangles the infinite tangle of sin that consumes us prior to Christ and, and who redeems us and gives us a new heart and who makes us righteous in your sight. Father, we praise you for this Christ and for the unity that we have in him. We ask this morning, Lord, as we go over these few verses that we would be edified that our hearts would be drawn to the truth of the gospel, that our, our lives would be called toward greater holiness, greater commitment to you, uh, Lord, that we would not be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Lord, that we would live that way truly, not in theory, but truly because of what you do in our hearts today through your word. Would you be with us now, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as the Apostle Paul (coughs) issues his prayer requests, at the end of chapter 15, our attention is drawn to three things. So this is what we're going to look at this morning as we consider Paul's prayer requests. So these are our points, if you're taking notes, and you want to just understand uh, broadly what, what the sermon is about today. Uh, So here they are. First, the plea, verse 30. Secondly, the petitions, verse 31. And then finally, the purpose. And for that, we're going to look at verses 32 to 33. The plea, the petitions, and the purpose. First, let's go to the plea. And for that, we're going to read verse 30. So if you would please look at that again with me. Verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Now, isn't this interesting? Let's just, let's just strike us. Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, the Paul, the one chosen by Christ himself, the one to whom the exalted Christ appeared in glory, the one who was given these visions, these incredible visions that he just so quickly refers to in his letters to the Corinthians, the one who would write most of the New Testament, this Paul, this Paul, the apostle, has prayer requests. Paul has prayer requests. Paul himself is not above prayer needs, 
even Paul is not a Lone Ranger Christian. Even Paul needs others to come alongside of him in prayer. And so we just have to stop there and just take in that basic observation. And that tells us that each of us in here, not apostles, not writing inspired scripture, I haven't been taken up to any heavens. And I imagine neither have you. We, as well as this apostle, who for whom it was true that all of those things happened, need each other. We need fellow believers. None of us exists on an island in isolation from our fellow believers. Not even the apostle lived his Christian life, carried out his Christian ministry, apart from the need to draw from, and in this case, receive prayer from, his fellow Christians. So let me just ask you, are you going into this new year, going into 2022, a little bit on an island? You just kind of doing your Christian life on your own. Let me encourage you in this way. Are you participating in gospel community group? Are you participating in men's and women's ministry? Yeah, I've got to get specific. We're not just going to live out here in the vagueness of it all, right? I mean, specifically, what would it look like for you to show that you do, in fact, need other believers. I think there's some starting points for us here to be involved in women's ministry and men's ministry, to be involved in a gospel community group. If you're not involved in those things, if you're not being around other believers, serving within the church around other believers, then undoubtedly you are, you're drifting out into a land of isolation. But even more, you're saying in that, that you don't need other believers. But what we see here is it's the case even with the apostle. We simply need each other. We cannot live the Christian life apart from each other. And so he issues a plea, a plea for prayer, that the Roman Christians would pray to God for him and with him. So let me look at each of those just briefly. A few implications here. To God, for him, and with him. So first, a reminder. When we pray, we are actually talking to God. Well, of course, we all know that, right? But we just need to be reminded of that as we see Paul's language here. Prayer to God. Pray to God. When we pray, Christians, we are actually, truly, really talking to the living God. These are not just words for self-actualization. These are not just well wishes for ourselves or someone else. We're not just giving words and wishes. We are literally, really, truly communing with God when we pray. What more do we need to spark life into our prayer lives, into our devotional lives? What more do we need to be told to encourage us to go and pray, to wake up in the morning and pray? What more do we need to hear than this fact that we're talking to God? We're talking to the living God. It is to God we pray. So first, just a reminder. Second, a check. 
Do we pray for one another? Let me just say this to us. This is basic Christianity. To use, you know, C.S. Lewis's title. This is mere Christianity, right? Basic Christianity, mere Christianity, involves at its core, on a basic level, praying for one another. So let me just ask you, as we move into this year, what place does praying for others have in your real lived out life? Once again, not in theory, but in practice. This is basic Christianity. Paul is simply asking them to do for him what he's been doing for them for some time. Chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, he speaks about how without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. He's telling his readers in Rome, he's saying, look, I've been praying for you for a long time continuously, and when I'm praying, I'm making mention of you all the time. He's asking them to do for him what he has been doing for them. Notice that his appeal or his plea is made to brothers. He starts it out that way, to his brothers, to his brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is made by our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the language there. By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. This tells us that prayer for one another is the outworking of oneness in Christ and the love that comes from the Spirit. Paul is reminding them of this great truth. We are all one in Christ, Roman believers. We share Christ. We have a sharing in Christ. Our identity is in him. My identity is in him. Me, Paulos, Paul, and you guys, all of you believers who are reading this letter in Rome. And on top of that, we all have the fruit of the Spirit, the love which God has poured into our hearts present within us. Do you know, if you are a believer, the love of God has been poured into your heart. You're not called to just go out here and mechanically and dutifully go and serve other people, love other people, be nice to other people within the church. What we're called to do is to express and let live with vitality that very love which the Holy Spirit of God has put there. Wasn't there before. It's there now. By the grace of God. By the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul is telling them to exercise their very Christian identity as those in Christ who have the Holy Spirit as they express that through praying for him. So third, we have a charge. So we see there, Paul gives his readers this wonderful reminder. And then he tells them who they are, reminds them of who they are in Christ. And then we get a charge. We never ask people to pray for us without also praying ourselves. Notice what Paul says here. He asks them to pray with him. He asked them not to just pray for him, but to pray with him. Paul's not farming this out. Paul is not passing the buck. He's asking them to bring him to the Lord in prayer as he himself is making these requests known to God. So what is the charge for us here? Well, simple, not to be lazy as we think about prayer. Not to ask people, 
to merely pray for you. Ask people to pray with you. It be praying from your own heart, talking to your heavenly Father. We are talking to our heavenly Father individually. And as we are asking other people to pray for us, we are asking them to join us in what we are already doing. Have you ever done that? Have you ever asked someone to pray for you and then you realize, man, I'm not even praying for myself. Ask someone to pray for your children. When was the last time we prayed for our own children? Or you're asking someone to pray for a coworker who's unsaved, and then you look back and you think, man, I haven't prayed for that coworker in weeks. We're not asking people to do something just merely in our place. We're asking people to join us, God's people, to join us in our communion with the Father. And what does this prayer look like? Well, Paul describes it here as striving together. Notice the language in verse 30. Striving together. To fight or contend along with. That's what this word means that Paul uses. That prayer is here presented as a great struggle. As a great fight. Prayer is not easy. It involves vigilance and effort. Prayer can be hard work. In fact, you should assume that prayer will be hard work. You know, oftentimes, I remember we were going through the book years ago, praying with Paul, and we were looking at uh, just what it looks like to pray rightly. And one of the things that came up in that book is that oftentimes we stop praying or we kind of give up on prayer because we run into obstacles. We run into hardships. Prayer, it just doesn't come natural. We think wrongly, that prayer's this thing that should just flow, just be so fluid, just, just flowing and flowing and flowing. And when it doesn't flow, oh man, something's wrong, or God's not being fair to us, or we just need to give up. But prayer is work. Prayer is hard work. And that's the reason Paul uses the language here of fighting, of contending, of struggling. Prayer is labor. Prayer is warfare. Do you really think about prayer in those two ways? Yes, it is and should often be a very free and open speaking with your father, with our father. Free and open communication, talking to God. What is prayer? Prayer is talking to God. That's what we teach our children. It's talking to God. But that doesn't mean, given the fact that we are living in this sinful world, given the flesh, the world, and the devil, that doesn't mean that prayer is going to be light and easy. It is labor and it is warfare. And if we don't embrace it as those things, we will give up. We will lose heart. Colossians 4.12 presents it this way, as Paul writes, Epaphras who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. You see how he's presented there? Struggling in prayer, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And listen to how Paul joins prayer to spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. It's interesting. We, we all know, well, most of us know Ephesians 6. You know the spiritual warfare passage? <coughs> But listen to how he puts the two together. In verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there he's just talking about normal life. Everyday life for a Christian is that. It's wrestling against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. So the Christian life is labor. The Christian life is warfare. But then he goes down as he continues to verses 18 and 19, and he folds prayer itself right into that. He says this, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So do you see prayer? As part of your fighting, your wrestling, your contending, your warfare against Satan and those powers of darkness in the heavenly places. And as we see in Ephesians 6, when Paul asks for prayer, it has to do with the progress of the gospel. That's what Paul's concern is. And that leads us now to the petitions here in Romans 15. So let's go now to our second point the petitions. Look at verse 31. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So Paul here asks for vigilant, (coughs) robust, persevering prayer from the Romans. That's his plea. That's his appeal. That's what he is urging them to do. Prayer for himself. But prayer for what? What's the content of those prayers? Paul doesn't just say to them, hey, pray for me. Pray for my work as an apostle. Paul has some specific prayers here. He has specific prayer requests, specific petitions. What are the petitions that he is offering to God and that he wants the Romans to offer with him. And we have two requests listed here. First, Paul prays for protection. Protection from the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. Paul is headed, as we talked about last week, as he is going to take this collection to Jerusalem for the needy saints there. Paul is headed to persecution central. Paul is headed right into the eye of the storm. The anti-Christ storm is brewing in Palestine, in Judea, in ways that it's not elsewhere. This is where the persecution began, as we remember. This is where Christ, Jesus himself, was persecuted. This is where John and Peter are arrested. This is where Stephen is stoned there with Paul watching, consenting. This is persecution central. Paul will be surrounded by unbelieving Jews in the motherland. The sorts of folks he talks about in Romans 2, 9, and 10. Do you remember those chapters? Do you remember what Paul had to say about uh, the rebelliousness and the presumption, the arrogance, The disobedience, 
of the unbelieving Jewish people to Messiah. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. They are looking to justify themselves by their own deeds. Paul is about to go right into the middle of all of that. To say that they hate Paul would be a massive understatement. They hate Paul with all the hatred they can muster. Not only is Paul preaching Christ, whom they hate, but he is also a former Pharisee. Paul himself was in the inner circle of the Jewish leadership. The same Jewish leadership, rewinding back to Christ, that most wanted Christ to die. That most wanted to entrap him, to find a way to kill him. Those group of Pharisees that Jesus delivers all of those woes against in Matthew 23. Woe to you, Pharisees. Paul was one of these. So, of course, he would be seen by many as a traitor. A traitor not only to his people, but a traitor to all the investment that had been put in him. A traitor to all that had been taught him. To all the traditions, the Pharisaical traditions that he had inherited. As a student of Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis, a traitor. And even more, he is the most Gentile-oriented of all the early preachers of Christ. It is Paul above any other who is reaching out to the Gentiles, who is embracing the Gentiles, who is spending time with Gentiles. You know, those nasty Gentiles. We talked about how when Romans 1 ends, the, the reader, who wouldn't be an unbelieving Jew, would be reading that and clapping, hearing all that rebuke and all that condemnation of the Gentile world. But then Paul immediately turns and directs his second chapter to the Jewish hearer. There was a hatred towards the Gentiles, a disdain, at least a contempt for these Gentiles. And here is Paul the most Gentile-oriented of all the preachers of Christ. So Paul is praying for safety. As he, as he drops in to the middle of all of that, Paul is asking the Lord to deliver him. He's asking the Lord to protect him, to grant him safety, and he's asking these believers to pray the same, that he will be delivered from the unbelieving or the disobedient Jews of Judea. But as we'll see in a moment, <coughs> in verse 32, it is not as though Paul is merely concerned for his life. It is fair to be concerned for your life, right? I mean, sure. We go into a situation that is dangerous and we pray, God, keep me safe. Protect me in this situation. Right? No one's saying that that is out of bounds for us to pray for our own personal safety. And especially as you know, we think as parents for the safety of our family members. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But what we need to see here in the heart of the apostle, in the praying of the apostle, in the plea of the apostle, is that he's not merely asking for traveling mercies. Okay? That's not what Paul's asking for. He's not merely asking for some safety when he gets to his destination. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 24, describes Paul's thinking as he's headed to Jerusalem. 
and a little before this as he writes this letter to the Romans. Here's what it says. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem. He's talking to the Ephesian elders as he's on his way to Jerusalem. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Like Jesus, who knows he's going to the cross, here Paul knows what he's going to face. But I do not account my life of any value. This is the words of Paul. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Do you know what American Christians need? More of that. We need more of that. I do not account my life as anything valuable at all, precious to me at all. What is my life? To live is Christ. To die is gain. Oh, how precious. Oh, how valuable. Oh, how much we cling to this earthly life and all of its comforts and all of its dreams and all of its manifold satisfactions. Hear the apostle, people of God. Hear the heart of one consumed with the gospel. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. May that be our big New Year's resolution. May that be the heart of every Christian in this church. To live in that way, that that consuming fire of life that says to live is Christ. To die is gain. To be with Christ is far better. Paul's life, his deliverance from the Jews, was all about furthering the gospel. Not mere traveling mercies, not mere safety, so he can breathe a little longer on earth, so that he can have a a few more heartbeats, so that he can sense with his five senses a little more of the created order. No, 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 no. That's not Paul's heart. Paul's heart is the furtherance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We find it again in Acts chapter 21, verse 13. I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So we know that Paul is not merely asking for preservation of his life. Paul has gospel things in mind. He has reasons for these petitions. That's his first prayer petition for protection, for safety, for deliverance. We come now to the second. We're still under the petitions. We come to his second petition. Secondly, he prays that the Gentile contribution will be accepted by the Jewish believers. Maybe they will reject Paul. Since he and his gospel have been slandered by some. Listen to Acts chapter 21, verse 21. When Paul comes to Jerusalem, James and the other leaders tell him this. Listen to this. And we read it earlier, but I just want to put it back before you. This may be a bit of Acts that you're not familiar with, that you haven't read before. Paul has been out there preaching the gospel. He's been gathering up all this money, and he comes 
to Jerusalem. And this is what James and the other leaders say to him. Many Jewish believers have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What does that tell us? In addition to the hatred, think of, put yourself in Paul's shoes. In addition to the hatred of unbelieving Jews, Paul is also facing misperceptions among believing Jews as well as slanderous accusations made by false teachers and Judaizers. So not only is he going to the mothership of persecution where there will be people who hate Christ and therefore him, but he's also going into an environment where his own people who have embraced his Christ, who have embraced the Messiah, don't trust him. Think that he's preaching false things. And of course, there are those there who claim the name of Christ, who are propagating these slanderous things about Paul so that people will not trust Paul or listen to his gospel. That's what Paul's headed into. So he prays. He prays. And he asks for intercessory prayer that the money he has gathered from the Gentiles particularly in Macedonia and Achaia, will be accepted by the Jews there. That's what Paul's praying for. And the acceptance of this gift will be a victory for the gospel. That's what we need to see. That's what Paul's concern is, the gospel. The victory of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, in that passage, Paul writes, For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. When Jews and Gentiles come together in Christ, when Jews and Gentiles, going back to the time of Paul, this was the great rift, this was the great dividing wall. When Jews and Gentiles come together, when Jews accept contribution from the Gentile believers of the Greek-speaking world, and when Gentile believers of the Greek-speaking world care enough about their Jewish brethren to give money to them, Christ is exalted. The gospel is expressed. The gospel shines. That is Paul's great concern. By accepting this gift, the Jerusalem saints will be endorsing Paul's mission and gospel as well as the Gentile converts he has made throughout the Mediterranean world. Once again, the success of the gospel, that is Paul's one petition. That's, his, that's the guiding principle of his life. And that's just a calibration on us as we think about our own lives this morning. You know, we've got a lot of distractions in this very materialistic, affluent culture that we live in. We've got a ton of things to tantalize us, a ton of things to tickle our minds. We're all rich. Living in this culture, uh, if you drove here this morning, you're rich. We're all rich, relatively speaking, in comparison with the rest of the world. So do we hear, do we hear those, those warnings from our Christ about the rich man entering the kingdom of heaven? 
Do we hear those warnings in Scripture about the love of money, the love of riches, and all the distractions and the thorns that choke love of riches and the cares of this life? Might we be gospel people rather than those just swimming in a sea of our own physical pleasures? We come now to our third point this morning, and that is the purpose. The purpose for which Paul prays, the purpose for which he asks for prayer. So we've seen the plea, the petitions, and now finally we come to the purpose. Look at verses 32 to 33. So that, that's purpose, By God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So we know from what we've seen or what we've just seen that Paul's ultimate aim is the furtherance of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel and the realization of the gospel in the unity of Jew and Gentile. (coughs) But what are Paul's immediate aims? Here he tells the Romans that their prayers for him have a purpose, a specific purpose. After being delivered in Jerusalem and after successfully giving the collection to the saints there, Paul will then be able to come to them in Rome. That's Paul's immediate concern. Obviously, if he is killed in Jerusalem, guess what? He's not going to make it to Rome. And if the contribution in Jerusalem is not accepted, there would probably be much further work to be done in the east. Can you imagine if Paul, the Jewish apostle to the Gentiles, had arrived in Jerusalem to give this money that that the Macedonians, Paul says, had given out of much affliction and their own lack. I mean, there are people living in Macedonia in northern Greece who do not know any of these believers in Jerusalem, and they are giving out of their own poverty and affliction so that those Jewish believers in Jerusalem can have things they don't have, needs that are not met. Can you imagine what a slight it would have been to the Gentile believers if Paul had arrived in Jerusalem with with this money and they would have said, rejected? We're not interested, Paul. Take it back. Can you imagine what that would have done to the Gentiles, to the hearts, to the faith of the Gentiles, to the consciences of those believers? Paul would have had to do much work, much work. He would have never made it to Rome. Surely he would have been back to those Gentiles, encouraging them in the faith, continuing to liaison with the Jews in Jerusalem. Who knows what would have gone on, but surely it would have impeded Paul's trip to Rome. So Paul's petitions have this purpose, that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Paul's refreshment, notice the word refreshment here, is not a matter of finding retreat or leisure, though those things are perfectly valid, right? We're not saying that uh, you don't have 
you know, you can't desire leisure and have leisure and desire for retreat and experience retreat. Of course, that is a part of, of what we need as human beings living in this world. But that is not what Paul is after here when he says that he might be refreshed in your company. It's not as though Paul's going to do all of this stuff and he's been doing all this stuff and he's going to get to Rome and he's going to get off the ship and they're going to put out a, a lazy boy and he's just going to flop down in it with a glass of sweet tea and have endless conversations at perfect ease. That's not what Paul is after. Paul's concern is to come to them for mutual edification, to be given and to give refreshment in gospel community, in that koinonia that Trey so clearly talked about several sermons ago in Philippians, that, that, that true partnership in the gospel of Jesus, that, that true identity, that mutuality in Christ. That is what Paul is after. We know that from the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Let me just say this to us all. This is the sort of refreshment that we all need here at Four Corners Church. This should be one of the major goals of your gospel community group. If you're a gospel community group leader, or you're just in a gospel community group, think about what Paul has in view here. When we gather weekly with our groups, we are gathering for this kind of mutual refreshment, this mutual joyous encouragement in our identity in Christ. That's what happens when we're together. And Paul ends, we see here, chapter 15, with a benediction. May the God of peace, the God who gives peace, be with you all. Amen. Now, what does this do? Of course, it blesses them in the moment. It's a great apostolic benediction on them. But it also does something else in light of verse 32. It reminds his readers that when he does come, he will come with these sorts of blessings. He, he's the apostle who can say, peace be with you. May the God of peace be with you. When he comes, he will come with that same benediction. He wants to come to them for, ref for refreshment, but also to be a blessing. Chapter 15, verse 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And as we finish up this morning, as we come to the end of our sermon for today, as we come to the end of this passage, I want to draw your attention to these two words at the beginning of verse 32. Simple words, profound in their meaning. God's will. God's will. He says, so that by God's will, I may come to you. This language of God's will, this attentiveness to God's will, this concern for God's will, echoes what Paul said at the very beginning of his letter. Chapter 1, verse 10, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last <coughs> succeed in coming to you. By God's will. Here we find the basic Christian principle that we always pray in accordance with God's will. We pray in accordance with God's wisdom, God's design, God's providence. We, as believers in Christ, pray as Jesus taught us. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't it interesting that we see that with Paul just in this passage? Your kingdom come, what's Paul's concern? The furtherance of the gospel, and now he's praying, your will be done. As he's always been praying, your will be done, Father, that I might go to Rome. Paul was confident that it was God's will for him to go to Rome, but, he did it, but Paul did not know how everything would work out in the end. Paul was left with trust and prayer. And that's where we're left, trust and prayer. So what happened? We could just end at this point, but it's helpful to at least briefly look at what happened. They, they prayed, and Paul prayed, and something happened. What happened? Well, Acts 21 verse 17 suggests that the contribution for Jerusalem was received. It says this, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Well, it's not explicit. It doesn't explicitly say that that the contribution was received, but Paul's only there for that reason. Why else is he there to give the contribution? He comes in the name of this contribution. So if the contribution had been rejected, Paul would not have written that he himself was received and even more received gladly. But what about his deliverance from the unbelieving Jews? Was Paul delivered? Was Paul protected? Was Paul saved from their hands? Well, not exactly. Paul was assaulted and arrested. He was imprisoned for two years. Paul was beaten. Mobs of Jewish unbelievers were attacking him. He was imprisoned and he was in that prison for two years. Or or in a prison, he was jailed for two whole years. And yet, the Roman soldiers and officials in Judea protected him from the Jews who were trying to kill him. Go and start reading in in, uh, chapter 20 of Acts and just read it all the way to the end. And you'll read about all of this. They protected him from being killed by the Jews. There was even a plot that the leaders were going to have him transported and then there was going to be a group of 40 who were going to ambush Paul to kill him. 40. They wanted Paul dead. But these Roman soldiers protected Paul. And eventually, after appealing his case to Caesar, he was sent to Rome. And eventually, after hardship and even shipwreck off the coast of Malta, he arrived in Rome. There he is. Paul arrived in Rome, but not as he had planned. Paul never had that idea in mind. He never thought, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get beaten up real badly. I'm going to get jailed for two years, and it's going to take me about another year or so to get there. I'm going to get shipwrecked and bitten by a snake on a beach, and I'm eventually going to make my way to Rome in chains. No. That's not how Paul prayed. That's not what Paul was praying for. But that's what the Lord God did. That's how it worked out. He arrived in Rome, not as he had planned, but in the end with the same result. Acts chapter 28, verses 14 to 15. And so we came to Rome. This is Luke writing because he's with Paul. And so we came to Rome 
And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. He saw them. He finally saw them, not in the way he had planned. But there he is with the believers, and they come to meet him, the same people he greets in the next chapter. So we take note here of this important lesson. God may accomplish the things we pray for in ways that totally surprise us and in ways that cause us much hardship, much suffering. What if you're praying for your unbelieving adult children and God's means of saving your unbelieving adult children is through you getting sick and suffering well unto death? What if that's God's will? What if that's the very means that God would use to save their souls? When we pray to God, he may do things that utterly surprise us. But God is faithful. God is good. And God is wise. He may say yes. He may say no. Or he may say, to use the words of John Stott, Yes, but. Yes, but. So what do we do this morning? What do we do? We pray diligently. We enlist others to join us. We plan our steps with God's gospel and God's will in mind. And then we entrust ourselves entirely into the hands of our perfectly wise And perfectly good God. We pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for feeding us here from these short verses from Paul. Lord, thank you for this letter to the Romans. Thank you for the time to gather this morning. And to meditate on prayer. And on your will. And on our togetherness in Christ. Father, we love you. We thank you that you have been with us this day. We pray that the ripples of this passage would go out into this week, building us up in our most holy faith. Father, we pray over the Lord's Supper now as the people of God come forward and as we partake that our hearts would be filled with faith and love and joy in the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.